0: This past year, with the coronavirus crisis, cultural Christianity, and let me define that for you cultural Christianity, all those who used to go to church, used to play Christian, maybe utilized some sort of shallow attempted faith in God, they have tipped their hand that the church is merely a small, Insignificant, icing on the cake part of their lives. This past year of the coronavirus crisis, cultural Christianity has taken a well deserved beating because it's separating those who would gather with God's people at all costs and those who will not. In fact, just recently a poll done by the Pew Research Center showed that 85% of church attenders think that their church should be shut down altogether or open according to government guidelines only only, no singing, limited attendance, no physical contact, masks required, and so forth and so on. Listen, when eighty-five percent of church attenders all agree on something, you can be certain that Scripture, Christ as the head of the church, a high view of the church, and sound ecclesiology have not entered into that mix. One of the most common images online in many articles about the church and coronavirus is the image of a church service with 10 people in it, all separated, occupying a large sanctuary. In other words, a picture of a dying and dead church. And we're supposed to be proud of this. And we're supposed to be good with it. Quite honestly, the longer that government restrictions on the church gatherings continue, the more and more healthy the true church of Jesus Christ will become because now only the regenerate are gathering talk about church discipline at the hand of the lord the church must meet the church must be faithful why is this 1 timothy 3:15 proclaims that we are the household of god the church ecclesia gathering the assembly We are the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress. That's a foundation of the truth. To put it another way, this is the third out of 200 times I'm going to say this. The church is what? Essential. We're going to say that louder. The church is what? Essential. The church is all that is standing between the judgment of God and an earth that needs to be rendered dead. The church is all that stands between God's judgment, what happens at the rapture of the church? Revelation 6 begins, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, all begin pouring down. Why? Because the church is gone. Listen, even if the world knew their eschatology, if they knew their eschatology, they would say, we want the church to meet because that's what's preventing God's judgment from just falling with unhindered horror. We are here to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. And as such, we are to hold out the gospel to the lost, not just as individuals sharing the gospel, but more importantly, as the church sharing the gospel. And the beginning point of the lost coming to faith in Christ is the faithful evangelistic prayers of the gathered saints of God. And that is our focal point this morning in First Timothy chapter 2. If you're not there already, that's where we'll be this morning. In 1st Timothy 2, and we began our look at 1st Timothy 2, 1 through 8 last time by introducing the idea of evangelistic prayer. And we started just by broadly talking about why evangelistic prayer is good. And I gave you four reasons. First, evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders in that it it gets us on track. It keeps us on track. it, It helps eliminate distraction. We also said that evangelistic prayer is good for church members, It pulls us out of ourselves, out of our our petty, selfish desires to the bigger mission. The bigger mission, which is to be discipled and to be prepared to share the gospel and to, to pray for the unbeliever and to walk alongside the new believer and to disciple them, to help them. We also said evangelistic prayer is good theology. It engages the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of mankind. And so that engagement happens in prayer. We pray for God to save someone who would repent. And so it engages with good theology. And finally, we said that evangelistic prayer is good ecclesiology. The study of the church is good for the church in that the church is to be where the new believers land and are discipled and inculcated into the body of christ and we we said last time that it's ridiculous it's it's mortifying to think about being out in the world and sharing the gospel with someone and they come to faith in christ and you say isn't that great you've come to faith why don't you go to our church's youtube channel and tune in that's ludicrous no what do we say come with me to be with the body Now, beginning today and for the next three messages following today, we want to continue our focus on evangelistic prayer. And I want to really go a little deeper and show you four reasons, four benefits, maybe we'll call it, for evangelistic prayer. Beginning next week, we'll talk about pleasing God. Evangelistic prayer is to please God. It makes Him joyful. We'll also talk about evangelistic prayer to trust atonement. If you trust the gospel, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto under, under salvation, then we should trust the gospel and we should proclaim it and pray that the gospel and the lost are connected. And then last, we'll look at evangelistic prayer is to follow greatness. To follow greatness, we'll look at the, the example of the Apostle Paul. But for today, the reason I'd like to give for evangelistic prayer is, evangelistic prayer is to help ourselves. It's to help ourselves. Now, this isn't a selfish motive for evangelistic prayer. What it is, is a a byproduct. It's a result of evangelistic prayer. It's good for you. It's good for me. Now, I trust that you've already been helped as you've elevated the evangelistic prayer in your own home, as we discussed last time. I hope that's been helpful to you. It's been helpful even in our home. And to examine evangelistic prayer to help ourselves, what we're going to do in this text is we're going to really look at the bookends On this short passage in prayer, verses 1 and 2 and then verse 8, these form what's called the inclusio, the literary section, the single focus of thought that Paul has in mind here. And so verses 1 and 2 and verse 8 kind of form the bookends. They're really our first thought here. Now, I want to drive this home as deeply as possible. So let's read the text, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do, kind of our roadmap for this morning. 1 Timothy 2, first of all then. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Then down to verse 8. Your Bible may start a paragraph. It really shouldn't. This should be the end of this section. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's the main thought. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 8. Now I want to drive these nails so deeply that you can hang a heavy, heavy lifestyle of prayer on these. So I'd like to show you 10 benefits of evangelistic prayer. 10 ways to help ourselves spiritually by praying for the lost. So let's engage our minds. Let's stay focused together. Speaking of which, the first benefit of evangelistic prayer is a focused church. A focused church. Paul begins this section, first of all, then. In Greek, then is therefore. You could very easily say first of all, therefore. It means that there's a connection to the the section immediately prior to this section. What is the occasion of the letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy? We said this a little bit last time, and when we went through 1 Timothy 1, we spent a lot of time on this. But Timothy is Paul's apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus has a problem. Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Look with me at verse 6. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Translation, leaders in the church, elders were going astray. They were going off track. And how were they going off track? They got away from the sole source of authority, and that is Scripture. And now they begin to quarrel They begin to argue and that doesn't mean so much to be angry as it means to begin to make arguments to make uh, to give opinions that are outside the realm of Scripture. Paul has already booted two elders out of the church verse 19 holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck of their faith. Remember we've said in Greek made shipwreck of the faith meaning they're twisting the gospel they're twisting the Scriptures. Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over the Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so the church at Ephesus had a massive internal leadership problem. And yet Paul now turns from a tone of rebuke and the problems of the church to a positive response, to an antidote for way with elders who are disrupting the church with error. What's the antidote? Pray for the lost. Pray for those who need Christ. Get back to the gospel. Proclaim the Savior. Be fervent and passionate and zealous and vehement and ardent and eager, enthusiastic. Any word you can think of to see the unsaved come to faith in Christ. Solves a multitude of problems. What does evangelistic prayer do? One of the things that it does is it gets the church theologically focused. It gets us focused because if all you know of the gospel is, well, uh, Jesus coming to people's hearts, amen. That's kind of a lame prayer, isn't it? But if you get focused on the gospel and begin to dig into the richness and the complexity and the depth of the gospel, You know that it's God who calls. It is God who saves. And therefore we ask God for his mercy. You know that no one enters the kingdom of heaven based on good works. So you ask for his mercy. You know that there is a heaven. There is a hell. And all humanity will end up in one of those two places. So you ask for his mercy. You know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so you ask for mercy. Evangelistic prayer is so good. For the leaders of the church, it's so healthy, it diminishes the perceived importance of what some of the elders in Ephesus were were guilty of, and that is speculating on ideas found outside of Scripture, or using Scripture perhaps improperly to advance a personal agenda. Evangelistic prayer makes a focused church because it provides an evaluation of your own life. Your own personal walk with the Lord, your own discipleship, your own commitment to learning and and growing. Because, you know, it's one thing to intellectually and academically say, yes, I believe I'm taking responsibility for my own discipleship and growth to academically say that I'll check that box off. It's quite another thing to be face to face with a new believer in Jesus Christ who asks questions like how many books of the Bible are there and why are there that many and who is Paul and who is Moses who is Abraham what's going on in Genesis did God really create everything I don't I didn't know that. I learned something different in school. How come there's a blank page between Malachi and Matthew? What's up there? All of these questions. And you need to be ready. That makes a focused church makes a focused church evangelistic prayer provides some impetus for you to take discipleship and preaching and learning the word of god seriously gives us a focused church there's a second benefit of evangelistic prayer we'll call this one a missionary heart a missionary heart paul actually begins this section with his admonition his strong exhortation using a verb that he often uses to call the Christian to obedience. If we were to honor the Greek word order here, it's important here, the Greek word order would say, I urge therefore first of all. I urge. That's where he begins. This is the well-used Greek verb, parakaleo, and Paul is using the first person version of this verb. He's not saying we should, or all of us should. He's using the first person version. I am telling you. I am urging you. I'm looking you eye to eye and telling you that you must, first of all, do what? Give these prayers. When he says, I urge, this is a broad word. It can mean to entreat. It can mean to exhort. It can even mean to comfort. In this particular case, though, based on the context, the nuance leans very, very hard toward imploring, begging, beseeching, requesting. It is a very, very strong term. It says you need to do this. After having outlined the problems in the church in the first 20 verses of the book, Paul is urging the church to pray for the lost. Listen, let me put it this way. Missions is not for missionaries. Missions is for Christians. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. I I love talking to pastors. I love talking to missionaries because they have built into their lives. They have built into their weekly schedules An urgency. That's their norm. Is to be urgent. There's a sense of determination. And the high value importance. Around the fact that there are lost people all around us. But on the other side of that coin. It's so sad to me. To see the Christian who wastes his life. Pursuing personal comfort. Pursuing my own personal goals. Without ever really being transformed. And transfixed by concern for the lost. Listen. Listen. And this is a hard warning, but 1 Corinthians 3 is very clear. If you read 1 Corinthians 3 carefully, you will find that there is a category of Christian who goes to heaven who lived an utterly useless life. And they are saved, according to the Apostle Paul, as through fire. Nothing, no reward. I don't want that to be you. I certainly don't want that to be me. But let me encourage you. And I think sometimes we get this backwards. You don't develop an urgency for the lost in order to engage in evangelistic prayer. You engage in evangelistic prayer in order to develop an urgency for the lost. Just start, begin praying, make your list of those who need to come to faith in Christ and begin praying for them. And the Lord will awaken in you this urgency. By the way, let me add a little bonus here As the Lord gives you that urgency in prayer, he will undoubtedly give you opportunities to transform your prayers into proclamation. Why would he entrust to someone who will never pray for the lost the opportunity to share the gospel with the lost when there are so many of you praying for the lost to whom he would much rather entrust that task? Why will he translate that urgency in prayer into the opportunity to share with the others? With others who don't know Christ. Because now God sees that you have a missionary heart. You have a missionary heart. There's a third benefit of evangelistic prayer. We'll call this a full-bodied prayer. A full-bodied prayer. What is the urging, the imploring, the the exhortation that Paul is pushing you toward? That for kings and all who are in high positions, verse 2. That for all people, verse 1 that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made now a lot of effort and a lot of ink has gone into trying to categorize these four varieties of prayer to make some distinctions and there are some distinctions supplication it's just a general category of making requests making petitions asking God for things that's a supplication The word prayers here is the most generic Greek term for prayer. It's not really meant to be distinguished from supplications at all. The two terms, in fact, are used together in other places. For example, Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the two go together. Intercessions. Interesting little fact it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament except for one other place. And that's also in 1 Timothy 4, verse 5. Intercessions is more formal. It speaks of a a formal request made to a king on behalf of someone else. In this case, it's on behalf of those who aren't even asking for prayer, the lost leaders of the world and perhaps the wayward leaders of the church. And then thanksgivings, and you know this, the plural, it's a little unusual for us. We don't use the word thanksgivings, plural. It's not just an attitude of thanks. It's not a general word of thanks for everything, Lord, It's more specific than that. The plural here helps us to define thanksgivings, listen to this, in relation to supplication and intercession. In other words, thanksgivings are attributing to God a list of requests that have already been answered. Why might we put thanksgivings at the end of a prayer? Because now we're listing back to God the things that he's already done. By the way, there's an added bonus to this. Thanksgivings also express confidence in God's future responses to supplications and to prayers, to intercessions. We see this in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What is that? I'm thanking you, Lord, for your answer in advance. That's a prayer of faith. The implication here, obviously, is that thanksgiving in advance to answers for prayer, you're giving this thanks because you already know that it's God's will to save the lost. And so you thank him in advance. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that because it is God's will to save the lost, your prayers will be answered? I'm not speaking of universalism. It is not God's will that all will be saved, but it is God's will that enough will be saved that your prayers will be answered. And in his sovereignty, he will lead you to pray. He will lead you to pray for the elect. Paul's idea here is not really to make certain we have a clear distinction between these different types of prayers. You don't have to stop in the middle of a prayer and open one eye and say, just so you know, we're moving on to intercessions at this point. That's not his point. The differences, I think, are fairly subtle. Now the point is is that we're not to restrict how you pray for some while praying more thoughtfully and more fervently for others. There's an idea of completeness, of wholeness, the full-bodied prayers, the full-orbed prayers. That you pray the same for all. You pray with supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. There's a fourth benefit of evangelistic prayer. We'll call this a submissive humility, a submissive humility. These prayers are to be made for all people, verse one, all people, verse four, for all in verse six. We don't distinguish some as being less or more worthy of our prayers for salvation. We don't elevate ourselves to the level of God by assuming God will save a certain person and won't save another. Have you in your heart ever declined to pray for someone because you believe them beyond hope? Or have you in your heart ever prayed way more for someone because you just feel like, man, that guy would make a great Christian? No, we don't do that. We pray for all people, all people, all. Here's a very simple comparison. This is where the submissive humility comes in. Simple comparison. First, here's you and me. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, here's God. Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Just so you get it, you wicked God, high and lifted up. And here is God talking to one who makes too many assumptions about God. Job thirty-eight four. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you? I know that some of you wrestle with having peace, praying for the salvation of people who are outwardly and obviously wicked. I understand that. But remember that total human depravity is simply better hidden in some than it is in others. If your life was on the news and on national television every single day, what would it look like? A great example of this just this past week, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of San Francisco condemned and criticized fellow Catholic Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi. He said, basically, she's a terrible example, she's horrible. I would have shaken his hand if I were standing right there for him saying that. But both of them have believed a false gospel of works. Both of them are headed toward hell. Both of them are in need of a true Savior who saves through grace alone, by faith alone. Praying for all people, not distinguishing distinguishing some as somehow more worthy of salvation, it's a good reminder that you too are part of all people that was you don't think for a minute that you were somehow slightly easier to save than your neighbor you were just as depraved james two ten says that you broke god's law and by doing so you broke all of them every single one someone once prayed for you and maybe that person said lord i don't think this one is savable but i'll pray anyway aren't you glad they did Someone thought of you. Someone said, well, I suppose I should pray for him anyway. But no way is that guy going to get saved. Some of you are sitting here right here. I've heard your testimonies. People have told you to your face. You could never be a Christian. You're too bad. Evangelistic prayer imparts a submissive humility. There's a fifth benefit of evangelistic prayer. A future hope. A future hope. These evangelistic prayers are to be made, verse 2, for kings. For kings. I told you we go word by word through this. This word for kings usually refers to an emperor, a, a, a big, big person who has a lot of power. But the plural here makes it more general along with the fact that it says in all who are in high positions. So in other words, anyone who is in a kingly role of any kind whatsoever, anyone in any power. Yes, there are those in government who may oppose and who may even harshly attempt to curtail your worship activities. And even though they act like your enemy at times, those who are in power are not your enemy. They're your mission field. They're the ones we're to pray for. They're part of the mission of the church, to pray for the lost. I know that that the men and women that rule over us very often make us so angry I don't think you'll be angry in 100,000 years when you've been in the glory of God. I think it would be better to have pity. It would be better to pray for them. And certainly this doesn't call the church to obey ungodly or unbiblical mandates or laws. We can't do that. But it does remind us to pray for those who persecute and oppress those without power. By the way, this was the heart attitude that God asked of Israel, listen to this, even when they were in exile. He said in Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What does that sound like? I urge that supplications, prayers, and sessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? It's the same idea. It's the same idea. Now, many have pointed out that the reason we're praying for them is so that they'll do what's right and allow us to lead a peaceful and quiet life, right? That hasn't worked out too well so far, has it? That's not the idea here. Yes, your prayers may change the hearts of governing officials, which means they'll govern differently. Certainly, we should be praying for them in that regard. But the prayers are meant to change us as as much as it's meant to change them. Our prayers are not so much what we want governing officials to do. That's a fine prayer. That's not the context here. The context is verse 4. God desires all people to be saved. That's what we're praying for don't pray oh lord let this governing official lower our taxes if you want to pray that that's fine but that's not the admonition here it's oh lord let this governing official see the light of the glory of christ and let him not have to face the judge of the universe and be brought to account for his wickedness let his wickedness be placed instead on the shoulders of the lord jesus christ on the cross And let his sins be paid for so that along with this man, along with this woman, we might all rejoice at the throne someday. That's what we pray for. The peaceful and quiet life isn't brought about by better government policies. It's brought about by the peace you enjoy by bringing all to the throne of God and asking for their salvation. In fact, the idea that God's intervention in the current government is somehow going to bring a lasting peace. That's not in line with what Scripture says. Scripture says just the opposite is going to happen. We're praying for the salvation of our governing officials for their sake, not because that will cause a new world order or a Christian utopia. In fact, the proper way to pray will keep you from post-millennialism. It'll keep you from believing that God is going to bring a new world order through these people. That's not going to happen. The Christian utopia, if you want to call it that, is not going to happen until the government is placed on the shoulders of who? The Prince of Peace. And so praying for kings, praying for all in authority, simply highlights the fact that we also pray for the return of the true and rightful king. Evangelistic prayer gives you future hope because you're praying for their salvation. You're praying for a a new heart for them, not that they're going to bring in a utopia. It's not going to happen. There's a sixth benefit of evangelistic prayer. We'll get back into the church here. We'll call this one a supportive membership, a supportive membership. Now, when I say membership, I mean church membership. We know that Paul says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. This is not restricted to those in government positions only. You remember the context of First Timothy. The context is here that the, the church at Ephesus was polluted with some wayward elders with some leaders who were not doing what was right. And so this includes a reminder to pray for all leaders, including those in the church. Leaders are reminded by James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's an accountability. There's, a, there's a, a heaviness. Now, in fact, some have even thought that Paul is subtly encouraging evangelistic prayer for some of the elders. That maybe even their salvation is in question. And that would certainly fall into the category of pray for all people. I don't know about you. I'd rather have somebody pray for my salvation a thousand times after I'm saved than zero times before I'm saved. Isn't that great? When somebody comes up to you and wants to share their faith, and you just say, thank you, but I'm already in Christ. Well, I still want to pray for you anyway. What do you say? Go ahead. For me personally, I cherish your prayers. I know that many times it's your prayers alone that bolster me and encourage my own heart. As James 3 and Hebrews 13 says, there is a spiritual burden to ministry. There is a weight It is, to be certain, a privilege. 2 Corinthians 4 says that ministry is a mercy, but it's a heavy mercy nonetheless. So how should you pray for your leaders? I don't mind if you pray for my salvation. Pretty sure I'm already saved, but I'd rather be sure. Let me give you three ways to pray. First of all, pray that we bear fruit. Pray that we bear fruit. There is nothing worse than an elder in the church that is an ivory tower elder who just makes decisions and doesn't do anything. Second way to pray, pray that we never stray from authority. That we never stray from authority. The sole authority of Scripture is Scripture alone. And leaders who begin sentences with, I think, sometimes go down a wrong avenue unless it is, I think we should open our Bibles. The third way to pray for your leaders Fulfill our ministry. To fulfill our ministry. First Thessalonians five twelve and 13 says we're to labor, we're to work. Evangelistic prayer makes you supportive members. I want to give you a seventh benefit, and this still goes back to your life now. The seventh benefit of evangelistic prayer, we'll call this one the prioritized schedule. A prioritized schedule. Paul says our evangelistic prayers help us to live a peaceful and quiet life. Now we've already noted that this is not the idea that somehow praying for the government will give you a peaceful and quiet life. It's the idea of personal contentment. It's the idea of tranquility. But it also carries the idea of getting your own priorities straight. The, the Greek word translated quiet here speaks of being well-ordered, that your spiritual ducks are in the row, so to speak. Your life is, is well-ordered. And what does a well-ordered life reflect it? Always translates into how you spend your time. Every time. What you're doing with the time that God has given you. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians to make the best use of your what? Time. And how does evangelistic prayer give you a well-ordered life? Well, it seems that the connection here is that the act of prayer, first of all, that that prayer itself orders your life, it places your priorities in correct placement, and in fact, the fact of evangelistic prayer, praying for the lost, what does that do? Well, it continually just makes your own dreams, your own aspirations, those things that you think you absolutely cannot live without, just seem less important and less weighty. If you'll spend your time praying for the lost, you'll spend less time praying for a bigger house. If you'll pray for the lost, you'll spend less time praying for a a, a better car. If you spend more time praying for the lost, you'll spend less time praying for power and success and to climb that ladder that leads to nowhere. It is so good for you. In fact, this is very closely related to the eighth benefit of evangelistic prayer. We'll call this benefit a worshipful life. A worshipful life. Not only do we pray evangelistic to lead a peaceful and quiet life, but this is described as being godly and dignified in every way. Godly and dignified in every way. Godly, what does this mean? Well, it just means to act more like God. But it's a word more technically that means to act with piety. And in fact, it's from a Greek root word that means to worship or to honor, to give what is due Acting godly is to act in a way that's honorable, that worships God. And this goes right together with the other descriptor that Paul gives, to be dignified. This is the idea of acting with propriety and, and holiness and seriousness. Same root word for worship. So there's a, a clear worship component here. It is a worshipful life. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices as an act of worship. Worship. But as we've already said, the point of the peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified life, the point can't be simply that we're living easier, worry-free lives. That can't be the case. That would contradict 2 Timothy one eight, that tells us that we're to share in the suffering for the gospel. That would contradict 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you have no trials or troubles whatsoever, that's not evidence of a godly life that's evidence that you may not be in christ but rather in the context of the whole book the peaceful and quiet life the godly and dignified life the context of the whole book tells us first timothy 6 1 let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor this is speaking to slaves Honor your masters, and here's the reason, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What does this mean? This speaks of living a holy life, a set-apart life, a different life, even, by the way, if that difference is highlighted by respectfully doing what God calls the church to do regardless of what the world says. To be separate, to be different. I was very pleased past week that um, dr anthony fauci the government's covid guru i was very pleased that he um, gave permission for churches to sing probably in september october and november i got news for you doc we've been singing every week we're not going to stop why because we're commanded to do so by the way one of the men leading the charge to still stop singing in the churches reverend al sharpton a man who gives ministry a horrible, horrible name with his ungodly, liberal, man-centered, aggressive stances against all that is holy and right. You want to know how to live a holy life? Just do everything the opposite of Al Sharpton, and you're probably on a pretty good track. No, we live a worshipful life, and no one gives us permission to do that. God has given us the duty to do that. Evangelistic prayer promotes a worshipful life. Let me give you a ninth benefit of evangelistic prayer. A confessing heart. A confessing heart. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. This is speaking specifically of gatherings of Christians. And Paul here speaks to the men now, this is not an instruction that when the body of Christ gathers in any sense, only men are to pray. That's not the point. We get further clarification on the male leadership of the church later in chapter 2, all of chapter 3. We won't deal with that right now. Yes, from chapters 2 and 3, the church is led by men. We're a male-driven church. But this is certainly not a prohibition against women praying in appropriate context. That's not the point here. The fact that it's the men praying here isn't focused on men versus women. It's focused, again, back to chapter 1, on the wayward men in the church, the leaders, the elders who aren't doing what's right. And they're to pray, lifting holy hands. Now, what does this mean? Well, this is one of the many, many postures of prayer in the Bible. In the Bible, people pray on their knees, they pray standing up, they pray looking up, they pray looking down, they pray with their hands down, they pray with their hands up. There's all kinds of physical postures of prayer. But the emphasis here is not on lifted hands, the emphasis is on holy hands. And this references the symbolic gesture of washing your hands to signify purity. For example, Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 19. The washing of hands is an important part of the priestly duty to prepare to enter into the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle. It's not that God is concerned about about, uh, sanitation. It is a symbolic gesture to say, I am coming with cleanness of heart. This is the only reference here in all of the New Testament to the raising of hands in the context of the gathered body of Christ. And so we certainly can't, construe it to be a formula to be a major practice in the church it doesn't prescribe this as a practice it simply refers to a picture a word picture that the church is already familiar with to emphasize the external is to miss the point altogether. we're not talking about oh if i'm going to be holy i should have uh, this part of my body higher than the rest that's not the point now i've mentioned this before but I want to make sure we understand this, a careful study of the practice of raising hands in the Old Testament in particular. We have to go to the Old Testament because this is the only reference in the New Testament. But if you study the Old Testament carefully, it's in the context of prayer. It's in the context of lament. It's in the context of helplessness. The New Testament doesn't condone or condemn the raising of hands in the church, but I'll tell you this, the raising of hands in the church is not supposed to be a knee-jerk reaction to the fact that the band started playing or that they went to a different key. That's not what it is. Consider the book of Lamentations alone. Lamentations 117, Zion, that's Jerusalem, stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. Lamentations 2.19 Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of the street. Lamentations 3.41-42 Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. Listen. The lifting of hands signifies brokenness, contrition, humility, discipline. The lifting up of hands says, God, I need your help. My hands are empty. Would you fill them? being under the heavy hand of God, and now we lift our hands for help. So when Paul tells the men, when he tells the leaders to lift holy hands, he's saying be contrite, be humble, be filled with confession. And evangelistic prayer seems here to be a key to unlocking the self-deprecation that is necessary to lift holy hands. Evangelistic prayer. One more. Obviously related to what we just talked about, the 10th benefit of evangelistic prayer, a sanctified leadership, a sanctified leadership. Verse eight, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This was the sin of the false teachers. This was the sin of the the wayward elders. This isn't just talking about being argumentative we see that covered with the anger part. The anger is an attitude of unforgiveness and fostering ill will toward others. But where was the anger coming from? It was coming from the quarreling. The quarreling here isn't speaking of yelling. It's not speaking of, of demonstrating anger. This is a word that means to reason, to give opinions, to dispute, it has to do with your own personal thoughts. And the strong implication here is that this quarreling is outside the realm of searching the Scriptures for truth. So, of course, they're going to quarrel because you have one opinion versus another and there is no standard. What should they have been doing? Well, by now, what Bible books of the New Testament does the church have? By the time First Timothy is written, the church has James, Galatians, Matthew, Mark, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Luke, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Acts. That's 15 out of 27 books, 16 if you count 1 Timothy. Is that enough to run the church? Absolutely. Probably with two of those. This admonition calls upon church leaders to give up pet opinions, give up personal preferences, give up weird teaching not based in Scripture, and get back to the business at hand, which is what? You guys know this by heart. Colossians 1.28 Him we what? Proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And now with a sanctified leadership, the church can do her job. The church can fulfill her duty. A recent uh, article praised the efforts of One church a team of epidemiologists evaluated the church and this team of epidemiologists in their evaluation of the church, they praised several efforts by the pastor and by the leadership. This is a 2000 member church in the Midwest and the team of epidemiologists who evaluated the church and who praised this church. They did so for doing the following out of the 2000 members Only 600 can attend church spread out over three services on Sundays and they must rotate so that no one, including the pastors, are allowed to attend church more than every two to three weeks. The epidemiologists evaluated that as good. They've enacted a policy of turning away anyone who shows up who wasn't registered online and so they have staff at the door to check your name versus the registry and to send you home if you're not online meaning no guests and no first-time attendees can spontaneously come to the church. They happen to have a public health official in the church, and so they put her on the leadership team to make sure that there's direct authority to make decisions for the church using health criteria. Apparently, that's a new qualification for church leadership. And the church created a culture of immediately exiting the building, going straight to your cars, and the article admits that there are a few mem- members who won't get in line and they stay and talk. Here is the leadership's goal, and I quote, the goal is to have as few people as possible. To that church, I say more power to you. Because you need to close. Based on the efforts of this church, the team of epidemiologists evaluating the church gave them high marks. Since when does the church of Jesus Christ get excited about high marks from the church? if the world thinks you're doing a great job, you're doing something wrong. According to Revelation 2 and 3, the only evaluation we care about are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the words of the Holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And to these seven churches, Jesus Christ begins every evaluation. I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know where you dwell. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. Why is the evaluation of Jesus Christ all that matters? Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, God, quote, put all things under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a sanctified leadership that will act according to that model. If a group of epidemiologists walks in here and says, you're doing really well. We've failed, unless they're Christians. And if a group of epi- epidemiologists walks here, here and says, we're going to evaluate you, our response is, no, Christ is going to evaluate you. So many benefits to evangelistic prayer. A focused church, a missionary heart, a full-bodied prayer, submissive humility, a future hope, supportive membership, a prioritized schedule, a worshipful life, a confessing heart and a sanctified leadership so healthy for us for the next month we're focused as a church on praying for the lost most important we said this last time heads of households lead your family in evangelistic prayer lead them in evangelistic prayer do we have a prayer board outside is it there All right, I didn't walk by and I realized, I don't know if it's there. I can't tell you to do something that's not there. We have a prayer board outside. I just found this out. There are markers, pens, slips of paper. I suggest you write names and pin them up. First name and age is fine. Johnny, 20 years old. For the rest of us to join you in prayer. Now, there's going to be a log jam back there. I know, just enjoy it. There's no social distancing. I'm sorry about that. But take the time to get some names up there and take the time to write some down that you can be praying for. We're gonna do this for the next month. Wouldn't you love to have your lost loved one prayed for by the rest of us? That's what we'll do together. Student Ministries is going to continue focusing on evangelistic prayer as well and small groups should be engaged in evangelistic prayer over the next month. Let's be the obedient church. Let's be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let's be the foundation of the gospel by being the instruments of connecting the lost to the gospel of Christ. And speaking of which, I have to say this, in a room this size and with as many people live streaming as there are right now, I have to say, Hebrews 6 says that you can hang around Christians, you can see the benefit of the Holy Spirit, you can be around the word of God, you can even like it a lot and still not be saved. You must come to faith in Christ on your own. Of your own accord by the power of God, you cannot ride the coattails of others to heaven. For you who are kids and teenagers, you won't go to heaven because mom and dad are saved. That is not the criteria. You will not go to heaven because you hung around in a building that has the word church on it. You must come to the cross. You must come to Christ. You must come to the invitation that we read earlier in Isaiah 55. Come, come to the waters what Jesus calls in John 4, the living waters. And he said, if you'll drink of the living waters, you will never again thirst. You will never again have need of salvation. And so I would say to you, in my evangelistic prayer, my prayer is for all who would be thinking that they're hiding undercover in the church. You can't hide. The Lord will find you. And may he find you with salvation and not with judgment. May he find you now and not later. May he dig into your heart and may he find that sin which you think is so precious that you must hold on to it and may he dig it out so that you would let go and that you would repent and you would say, no, I must give this to you. I must lay this sin at the foot of the cross. That's my prayer. That is my evangelistic prayer for you and I hope all of you will be praying for the lost. And here's what I want to see. We set up our little kind of giant Lego model Uh, baptistry over here every once in a while i want to see some people lined up that are answers to prayer the names you put on that board today i want them getting wet in the months to come let's see if the lord will do that amen let's pray our father we thank you and we love you for this very strong urging from the words of the apostle paul that we would pray for all who are lost we pray for those who are lost in our own midst. We pray for those who are lost among our family, our, our friends, coworkers, our neighbors. Lord, would you would you do something great and marvelous? You've been so gracious to our church over the past year. You have added so many to our number. You have discipled so many. You have done great and mighty things. And we pray that would continue. Lord, this year in our church, you as you know, you are... Um, sovereignly helping us to focus on the church the pillar and foundation of the truth and really our first duty is to be the church that proclaims the gospel and so i pray lord that in our prayers we would pray fervently for all in need that we would pray for our own who don't know christ i pray for every child in this church lord we've asked this before but we're going to boldly ask again that there would not be a single baby, a single toddler, a single child that comes through our doors that does not stand before you saved someday. Not one. I pray, Lord, that not one of them would be missing. Lord, we have even ladies in our midst who are now expecting little ones, and we pray for them. We have coworkers and neighbors some even wives or husbands who don't know you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do a great and mighty work that the Spirit of God would blow and move to regenerate the hearts of the lost around us. We pray these things for Christ's glory and in his name, amen.